Pastor Eric talked about chapter 3 last week. And we're going to talk about chapter 4 tonight. And we're going to talk about, it's a case study, how Paul is trying to bring forth a truth, and he's not just going to use this human argument. He's, he's going to use a biblical argument, an Old Testament biblical argument, by talking about Abraham and David. What justified them? What made them righteous before God? Salvation. And this particular section of the Bible here is a Bible where it really just levels the entire playing field. Last week, Pastor Eric was going through it, and the big sticking point, the big verse is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, every single person, if you were to go to the Lord and say, based upon works, say, God, I want to be able to get into eternity with you, and I think I should be able to because I'm good enough. We have another thing coming. Because God is so glorious and we're so sinful, even the best person that you can even imagine walking this earth, God says, there's not, that person is not righteous because it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's in 310. 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our throats are like an open tomb. And so Paul is coming in and breaking down their, world, their, their worldview of, around them and how they think of God and trying to re-educate them, this Roman church, to have the right thinking, to have a right knowledge. That's what he's doing here. And you can just imagine he's writing to the Roman church where kind of all the nations gather, and you have staunch Jews, you have, you know, just crazy Gentiles, and there are not many of them. It's kind of like possibly the church in Morocco, and they have to get together and be common, be in unity. But you have this Jew who's been raised in a synagogue all of his life or her life. All these dietary rules and requirements and sacrifices and everything else no bacon and no shrimp and you just a thousand rules that to be, to be a Jew, you're to be set apart and God gave those requirements. But to a Gentile, they eat whatever they want. They don't observe these, these, these rituals and these holidays and Sabbaths and whatnot. And you bring them together and it's just almost a recipe for an argument, Right? So most of Paul's letters are dealing with this argument, this tension that's in, within um, the church. We can find that within our church as well. Many people from many different backgrounds here together for one purpose and one goal. So this is a leveling passage of Scripture. It really gets us to understand how to be saved. So tonight you're like, well, I've already heard this message, Kent. I've heard this a thousand times. I've received it. But I'm telling you right now, would you please just keep your mind open because God has something for you in this passage. Would you please just say, okay, wait a second here. I've heard this before. I've heard it taught before. I maybe, you maybe even taught it before and studied hard on it. But this right here is really the, the basis of our faith and understanding of how to be right before a holy God. And we should be able to understand it and comprehend it well enough to explain it that's the truth. So can you explain it? Maybe you understand it, but can you explain it to someone? Because we're called to be a disciple maker, 
Well, but first, before I can make a disciple, I have to tell them the truth about the, the gospel, right? That's what we're going to talk about. And as I was going through it, I was thinking, man, the time where 14 years ago, over 14 years ago, I had the moment in life that kind of like that ground-breaking, earth-shaking, um, worldview change because I became a Christian, October 21st of 2000. And it was a process over almost the, an exact year. Almost in an exact year, it was a process of God opening my heart and tilling my heart. And he did it in several ways. And the reason why I'm sharing this story is because it can dovetail right into what we're going to talk about because this is sort of my story. Um, and I'm not going to tell my whole testimony because it could take a while because I have a big testimony. Um, however, and some of you have heard it, but around October, actually October 19th of uh, two, 1999, I venture up into a school in California to learn a new job in the Air Force. And that's where I met a particular person that was walking in the faith. And now I never had an experience really of um, hanging out with somebody who actually walks in the faith, who proclaims Jesus and tries to live it. And we became workout partners and just fast forwarding through all this stuff, the next thing you know, we, had to be, we became roommates and we moved out here together and he got plugged in right out of the way into a Baptist church, Hilltop Baptist in town. And he started up a young adults ministry because they didn't have one. He somehow roped me into coming and playing guitar for his young adults ministry. I'm sitting there singing songs and playing songs like, Lord, I lift your name on high, all, you know, all these songs, and I'm not even saved. <laughs> but I was like, I got an audience. Praise the Lord, you know. But when you, when you walk in and you go to one of those traditional churches, what's the first thing you see is like this, this registry, this book that you're supposed to sign as a guest. And I thought, okay, I'll sign it. So I get up there and I put my name and address and phone number or whatever, and off I go, and next thing you know, after watching my friend Dan's life and how he was walking with the Lord, and God was just opening my heart. No man can open your heart. Only God opens your heart. But he uses people and, uh, to bring truth to you. We, we know that from Acts chapter 16 when Paul goes to Philippi, and there's Lydia. She's hanging out by the river, and it, and it says God opened her heart to heed the things Paul said, and she gets saved. God opens hearts, but he uses people like you and I to, to communicate the gospel. And that's what I was sitting there just watching Dan's life for an entire year. And he's different, you know. And next one Tuesday night, I get a knock on the door. I'm the only one home. And these two gentlemen show up, and I remember one of them's name's Tony. And I can't remember the other one's name. He's like, hey, we're from Hilltop Baptist. And we just kind of have this ministry where we go out every Tuesday night and we read our little book, those people, this guest book. And we realize, okay, this person's not part of our church. And we'll go over to their house and just talk to them, see how they're doing and what they, what they think, you know. And sure enough, there they had. And God had an appointment that night for me. And here I am. I'm, church, I'm a self-righteous sinner. I had Kent's plan in mind that I was going to make money, I was going to do my thing, and, but God had sort of been working on me, but at the same time, I was kind of running from it, and I was going to do my own thing, and these gentlemen came in, and pretty much right out of the gate started talking about God, and I was arguing with them. I love to argue with Christians. 
I was trying to like, oh, I can beat them on this, you know. You want to come in here and try to talk this stuff to me? I'm going to see if I can dis- you know, persuade you not to think and believe what you believe, you know. And I'm sitting here just giving them all I had, and it wasn't much now looking back on it. <laughs> and they pretty much leveled with me. And it came from Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, and, you know. But they weren't like referencing, hey, look at Romans and open it up. But the message, what they were saying was coming right out of here. And I was like, Kent, you're not good enough for God. And I was like, yes, I am. Look at, I got works. If there is a God and he's gracious, then I'm good enough. And then he just kept on saying, Kent, you're not good enough. And they just kept on going. And for three hours, they just kept working on me, working on me, and working on me. And I'm sitting there fighting them tooth and nail, thinking if God's a gracious God and all this stuff, I'm going to be good enough. And, and they're like, no, you're not good enough. None of us are. And that's the, really the first time I've ever heard that message. Right? And that night, I went to bed, and I think it was the first time in my life that I truly talked to God and said, with their message, it's for real, God. If this is true and what they're saying, I want to know you and walk with you. And then about a week and a half or two weeks later, I come to the Lord at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And God used this brother Dan, and he's here tonight actually, Raise your hand, Dan. I get a witness right here. Yeah, I'm embarrassing. I've always wanted to say, can I get a witness? <laughs> I got a witness. He saw how sinful I was, and I still am. But he saw, you know, and the radical change God did in my life. He saw it. You know, and we give God the glory for everything. But it was between him, God using him, and bringing this message right here. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that message, and I knew nothing about the scripture. I knew nothing about the Old Testament. I knew nothing about the New Testament. All I knew of Jesus was Christmas and Easter. I didn't know anything about David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But what they said to me shaked me. It changed my worldview. It changed everything. And then 14 years later, it's like I, amazing how God works. But God opened my heart to heed these things. And I pray tonight that God opens your heart, if you haven't come to the Lord, to hear this message and receive him. And if you've been straying or walking away and running from God, come back. Come back. But he's going to go and he's going to give us a case study of two amazing Old Testament patriarchs. Two people that the Jews revered more than anyone else in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And he's going to explain how we can be in right standing with our Heavenly Father. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So here we have this, he's going to come right out and say, look, I'm going to show you that it's not by works that you're saved or good or righteous or anything. And I'm going to show you how Abraham, how God made Abraham righteous, 
and it wasn't based upon works. Now, Abraham did some great things, right? He did. You got the whole Isaac incident where God asked him to sacrifice, and he really believed God. He did. But if you look on the other end of, of Abraham's life, he had some big follies, some sin as well. You have the whole Hagar incident. He's married to Sarah and then takes Hagar and sleeps with her to have Ishmael. He gave Sarah up his wife to Pharaoh because he wanted to protect his own end. Who does that? What kind of man convinces his wife to say, tell him you're my sister so I don't die? So can Abraham... Go before God and say, God, I was good enough. Of course not. But Abraham was considered righteous based upon what he believed that God was going to make him a father of many nations. Okay? And, and we're talking about this whole works and wages and counted as grace and debt in verse 4. And he's going to go ahead and further develop this truth later on. Um, but we got this weird dynamic here of a wage, and a gift. He's like, look, there's two different things here, and Paul wants us to understand this. You got people who earn a wage and people who get a gift. Two totally different things. And it's so um, hard sometimes for us to understand because we're people that want to work and we want to deserve what we get, right? I do, don't you? Like, I want to work a hard 40 hours and receive a paycheck that rewards me for that. But I earned that. But if I work 40 hours hard, and then my boss comes up and says, hey, Ken, I just want to give you a gift. Here's your paycheck. Well, it's not a gift because I worked for it, right? But salvation is totally different because you could do nothing to earn it except believe that Jesus Christ came and died, and he was raised from the dead, and if we put our faith in him, we can get it into a relationship with our Heavenly Father that way. But we didn't earn that. There's nothing that we could have done to have earned that. And so, if we try to earn that, then how in the world does that work? Because it's a free gift. So a wage and a gift are two totally different things. I don't deserve a gift. If you come and say, Ken, here's a million bucks, I'm going to say, I didn't do anything to deserve it. I just want to give it to you. But if I, earn, if I worked for it, it would be a totally different story. He's saying, in salvation, you cannot think works, works, works. You cannot think that the more you show up to church, the more you read your Bible, the more prayer time you set aside, the more you help people that need help, which are all wonderful things that we should do, but that's not going to make you righteous. The only thing that makes you righteous is Jesus Christ, your faith in him. So he's going to develop this argument here. And he says in number five, verse five, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. So right out of the gate, who does he justify? The ungodly. There, he's not justifying the godly because there are none. And this is a hard one for people to really comprehend. Now, when I used to go downtown and do evangelism and teach evangelism, and I would take a crew and go downtown on Friday nights, we go down there, and we would ask people, hey, can we talk to you about spiritual things and strike up a conversation with just people walking down the sidewalk? A lot of times they say yes. And we ask them, would you consider yourself a Christian? What do you believe? Do you consider yourself a Christian? Like, yeah, I believe in God. And I'm a Christian. Then I ask one more thing. Well, 
what makes you a Christian? You're like, well, I'm a good person. Four out of five people would tell me that. Four out of five that said, I'm a Christian because of my works. That's alarming. And I know I'm going downtown where there's a lot of bars and things. And, but they think that they're Christians because they're a good person because of what they do. And they were thinking exactly what I was thinking before. If you would, matter of fact, when I signed up for the Air Force, we had to put our dog tags, put in, you know, on our dog tags. It says, what, what religion are you? And I put Protestant. I didn't know what Protestant was, but I heard somebody say it, and they went to a church, and I'm like, this is what I am. <laughs> and that's just, that was my identity. I'm kind of an American. I kind of like the idea of church and Christianity, but I didn't know anything about it. And if you would have asked me, are you a good person, I would have said yes. If you would have probably asked me, do you believe in Jesus? I know nothing about him, but it's what everybody else says, yes. And what I was totally off, and so are these four out of five people and then we would take him down this road, and it's like, well, if the scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then how can you be good enough? And bam, we're into the conversation. Right into it. We're like, then if they keep on arguments, it's like, well, let's go through the law. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. And you busted every one of them. That's God's holy standard. And next thing you know, they're sitting there with this information, and they're like, what do I do with this? Sometimes people came to the Lord right on the street. Other times they would just walk away and say, I don't want it. But that's the message. This is the message. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even Abraham. Even Abraham. And God justifies the ungodly. And Abraham's faith is what accounted him for righteousness. Just as David in verse 6 also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So David wrote in the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, the righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You're like, what is this all about? How many times you got to talk about this circumcision thing? Everybody turn to Genesis 15. Paul is pulling his argument out of his chapter right here and in a, a few other chapters in Genesis. This is one that you want to memorize. Mark it in your Bibles. Underline it. This is important for all of us to understand. And so he, he, he's going to strike a covenant. God is going to strike a covenant with Abraham. And he says, let's go in verse 4. And behold, 
15.4, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. And he was talking about someone else, some other person within the family around there. Because Abraham couldn't have children. He, wasn't, he and Sarah didn't have children, right? This one should not be the heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So the heir, the, the, the seed that came all the way back from Genesis 3.15, remember that seed I talked about in, in Romans chapter 1? That you're to look for the seed all through the Old Testament. And that seed is Jesus Christ revealed. And that's why the genealogies are so important. If you're like, I can't stand the genealogies. They're important because they're tracing the seed. And every book of the Old Testament, all 39, are talking somehow or some way about the seed. Okay? And in 5, verse 5, he says, Then he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So why was Abraham righteous? Which means having a right standing before God. A right standing. You can actually stand up. God will stand you up as righteous. Acceptable. What was the reason? Because he believed God in the promise. And it wasn't one thing that Abraham did to earn it. Not one. And if you then turn to Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. And he says, this is my covenant which ye shall keep. So this is after he counted him as righteous. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And this, in verse 13 at the very bottom, is an everlasting covenant. Now, when did God impute righteousness to Abraham? Before circumcision. What's the point of circumcision? To be set apart. To be set apart from everyone else because these people, the Jewish people, he's the father of the Jewish race, and he's also our spiritual father as well. He's not just the father to the Jews. He's also the father to the Gentiles. Anywhere they go, he's the father of those Moroccan believers. He's the father of the Ugandan believers and down in Lightshine and all these things. If you believe by faith in God through Jesus Christ, Abraham is your father. That's what that's saying. And, but when it came, comes to circumcision and the law and the rules, well, that's after his righteousness was set for believing. And he's going to be the father of many nations. He tells him four times the one theme that's mentioned more than any, any other theme in the book of Genesis. You're going to be the father of many nations. And so this is where Paul is pulling this argument out right here. And then let's go to verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What is that? Do, is it void now? Do we not pay attention to it? And he's going to say, no, on the contrary. 
Jesus fulfills it. He doesn't tear it down. He fulfills it. Because it's important, because it points us to righteousness. It, it's like that mirror. It just shows you your dirt. But if I walk up and I have a dirty face and I go, and I got mud on my face, I'm looking in the mirror, I'm not going to sit there and wash it off with the mirror. I'm going to wash it off with the water. That mirror's job is just to show me how dirty that I am. It's the water that cleanses me. In the same way, the law is just to show you and me how sinful we are and that we need a cleansing agent, and that's the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. That's the easiest way for me to explain and understand the law. But every single one of us has broken the Ten Commandments, meaning we have fallen short of the glory of God. So this is how I use it. I'll walk up to people and I'll just talk to them. And, and we're sitting there having a conversation. And it's like, well, if, if you do think, and, and I always lump myself in. It's like, look, I used to think I was good enough. But the word says something different. And this is what it says. It says that he's going to judge us according to his righteousness and his law. And nobody is going to stand before him and be able to say that we're good enough because of this reason. Have you ever had an, a God, another God? Have you ever worshipped anything else? It's like, yes, I worship myself. Boom, right there, one. I broke the first commandment. And you just keep going down the list. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Boom, number five. Have you ever stolen anything? Boom, number eight. Have you ever coveted anything? Boom, number ten. And I just sit there and say, well, based upon what you just said and what I said, are we good enough? Are we going to be good enough if we are to stand before the Lord and he's going to judge us based upon this right here, his standard? It's like, no. Then what are we going to do about it? Do you realize he gave his son to die for you to cover your sin here? But see, that's the purpose of the law. I think it's important that we use it at the right time in the right way. You can't beat people over the head with it. But it is a convictor, and that's what it's designed for. And the Jewish nation was given these oracles, this amazing Amazing understanding of who God is and who they are before God. And they were to, you know, take it and proclaim it and hold to it. And they should have been the whole time saying, I'm never good enough and I'm waiting for my Savior. It's remarkable how many Jews missed Jesus when he came. But you got to remember, the early church was all Jews at first on the day of Pentecost. Not all the Jews missed it. A lot of Jews came to Christ, but a lot of them didn't because it was about their self-righteousness. It was about the laws and keeping the laws and looking straight, looking holy like the Pharisees. So the law brings about wrath, for there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is a faith, in verse 16, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So, church, if we can have the faith of Abraham, we can be saved. But if we choose not to believe God by faith, we are not going to be saved. That's what he's saying. Some of you in here may have never grasped that concept, and you're just kind of going through the motions. You've been coming to church for many years. And it's, now's the time where God's opening your heart. Or you're just struggling talking to somebody, and you're like, how do I communicate this gospel? And this, this, these passages lend, lend it as like a tool for us. It's like a tutor for us to kind of guide people through, because that's exactly what Paul is doing. 
As it is written in verse 17, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as they did. Who, contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. So Abraham is looking at his body. He's like 100 years old by the time he has his child. He's like, I'm dead when it comes to the reproductive system and everything else. There's no way, right? Since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb, she's like 90, Scripture says. She's well past the age of childbearing. And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed God, that God said, I want to give you a child And this child is going to be the seed. And in this seed, as your generations go, eventually you're going to be the father of many nations. You realize in the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and the Muslim faith. I know Muslims, they have a different thinking and they're wrong on this. And the Jewish people, they miss the Messiah. But if you ask them, who's your spiritual father? They're going to say, Abraham. And I think, and I believe at the end, and right now what we're seeing is a lot of people, especially Muslims, are coming to Christ in, in record numbers. No other time in history like now in Egypt right now, there's more, Christ, more Muslims coming to Christ. A lot of them through dreams and visions and other missionaries going out and communicating the gospel. Then the Egyptians get saved and they tell their neighbor or whatever. In Iran, the same thing is happening. We have one thing in common is that Abraham is our father, but our theology is a lot different. A lot different. Here we have Sarah at 90 years old, well beyond childbearing. Matter of fact, usually around 40 to 45 in a woman. That's when it kind of ends. And then you have Abraham who's 100, right? It's just... Physically speaking, it just doesn't, it can't happen. It would take a miracle. And here's something important to know. That everything in the Old Testament is giving off the shadow of something good to come. Hebrews 10.1 tells us that. So everything in the Old Testament is pointing to what we now know as Jesus Christ. He's the good thing that came. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you've got to ask, well, how does this point me to Christ? What is this? You know? And it's remarkable that you have this woman with a dead womb. It, it's not working. It's a tomb. And it brought forth life, the seed. This dead tomb bears a child. And it's a foreshadow of something to come that God can take something dead and bring it back to life. And you got this dead womb. It's a tomb. And it brings forth life. And here we have Jesus who comes and is put in a tomb. He was dead and he's resurrected and there's life. It's remarkable how God 
pieces and weaves all this together, just based on this stuff alone should strengthen your faith. How God works and takes something that's dead and brings it alive. I was dead as a doornail 14 years ago. And then when God came and filled me up, he brought me to life, and I have a new passion, a new zeal in life, and that was only because of God and his favor. But some of us, we struggle with this still. It's just like, well, I felt good before and all this stuff, but let's look at the truth and what Paul says. Turn to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 1, And you he made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's who we were. And if you haven't accepted Christ, this is who it is. This is the truth, that you're completely dead. There's nothing in and of yourself that's good. Nothing. And, we, and you're walking, we, we walked according to the prince of the world, that's Satan. He levels us here, right? This completely leveled us. We're fulfilling everything against, against the will of God. We're desires of the flesh and of the mind. By children, we're, by nature, we're children of wrath. And he says, just like the others, everybody is in this thing together. What's a dead person? What can a dead person do? Can they do anything for you? Or can they do anything for themselves? Absolutely not. But, in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he, had, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace that you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to earn his approval. Nothing. Our righteousness is is not based on any work that I do, anything that I've done in the past. My right standing before God literally has nothing to do with me. How can a dead person have anything to do with righteousness? How can a dead person work at anything to be righteous? It's an act of God, and it's God who does it. And it's grace. I can't earn it. Remember, it's like the wages and grace. It's the gift. You can't earn a gift. It's just given to you freely because somebody loves you enough to give it to you. And that's the truth of Christianity. That's our saving hope, that there's nothing that we can do, and that's what makes him so worshipable. Is that a word? (laughs) That's why every morning I need to wake up and think about this. I need to think my righteousness is in heaven sitting on the throne, and it's not on this earth. My righteousness is Jesus Christ. My righteousness is Jesus Christ, and that's it. Everybody say it. Our righteousness is Jesus Christ. One more time. 
Our righteousness is Jesus Christ. That is it. Praise the Lord that I don't have to earn it and I don't have to try to deserve it. But in response, and everybody's sitting there waiting for this one to drop. When's the shoe going to drop? In response, how should we act? Do we act as if that grace is the most valuable thing on the planet? Or is it something that you don't really care much about? It's like on the priority scale of our, you know, of our importance here, it's like, yeah, it's number eight. Because I care about me first and me second and me third and me fourth and go down the line. <laughs> the most valuable thing I can hold on to is his grace. Because my righteousness is Jesus Christ and nothing else. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He's like, look, if anybody can boast, let me go ahead and do it. If you can compare to my credentials... If your credentials can match up to mine, then let's go for it. Here I am. I'm a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, an enormous amount of zeal. He has a list of accomplishments and things that he was just born into. Bam. You cannot stack up to Paul. That Philippian church couldn't stack up to Paul. And he says, you know what? These things, even though they're good, I consider them rubbish. In the Greek word, that's sewage or dung. Even as good as these things are, if I'm looking at this and saying this is my righteousness, I'm going to tell you right now, I am letting go of these things. And I am going to turn and say my righteousness is Jesus Christ. I consider this stuff right here sewage compared to the glorious nature of who Jesus Christ is. He says, I'm going to press on toward the goal of my upward calling of how he holds on to me and how he come and saved me in my righteousness. And I'm always going to look to that. And that's what he's going to meditate upon. Even though these things are good, and we should never look down upon good things like education and things, but some things we're just born into and other things that we deserve, like we earned them, degrees or whatever, positions, it's all rubbish compared to Jesus Christ. That's his message, because he is our salvation, salvation alone. Let's finish up here in Romans chapter 4. You know why this was all written? He says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but it was also for us. This message was, a, was given for us. Do you realize when he say he looked up into the stars? And he said, look and count the stars. We know there's billions and billions of stars. He says, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And you're one of them. You're like one of those stars that he was looking at. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. Sometimes it's, it's hard to understand Paul's reasonings, his reasoning when he's going through the book of Romans. Because he's talking to people um, who have a, a really deep education in the Old Testament. And they've gone and they've lived in the Old Testament uh, traditions and, and whatnot all their life. And so when he's talking to them, 
Like, he, they get Abraham, they get David, and they should, bam, right out of the gate, remember that he was justified, righteous before circumcision and the point of circumcision and get all that. And for some of us, it's just, it's just so new to us, and it's just like, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And when I first read it a long time ago, it's just like, man, I just don't fully get this. I don't, you know, and I had to learn. I had to go through the Old Testament. And, and I'm still sometimes like, man, Paul, how does the common person understand this? But you know what? When you really boil it down and you look at the major theme of the scriptures, that the seed was coming, and by faith, if you believe in that seed, that he would save you, that God wants a relationship with you. If you keep that whole thing in mind, the big picture, that God wants to redeem what was lost in the garden, he's going to through his son. And his son is the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ. His son is your righteousness. That's what you meditate upon. That's what you think about when you're reading through these things and when you're going through the book of Romans. And then it becomes a little bit more clear and it's easier to understand if you keep the big picture in mind. That's what the whole Bible is about. Redeeming what was lost in the garden. And that was a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. And his, He loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. We should be communicating this to our neighbors and to our family. And we should be truly meditating upon it in our quiet time. As we go, everywhere we go, as we sit, as we talk to our children, we should be talking to them about all these things. Because it's, it's our righteousness and that's it. Nobody can take it away from us. It's everything to us. And so may we worship God and may we worship Jesus because of how good he is in our lives, how we were dead and he brought us alive, not because we did anything good, because he just loved us. Amazing. And so allow me to pray and then we're gonna jump into communion. Father, I just thank you so much for this scripture. I thank you for Jesus, that he's our righteousness, that to be in a right standing before you, we accept him by faith and not by works. And there's nothing that we can boast about in and of ourselves. There's nothing that we know that we're not good enough and you don't expect us to be. And so humble our hearts and allow us to receive this free gift. And even as a parent myself, when I, when I give a gift to my child, I don't want them to be thinking how much they're gonna, they need to pay me back for it. I want, them, I want to see the smile upon their face and love me for it. I want them to give me a hug because I gave them a gift that really touched them. In the same way, Father, I know that that's how you see us and how you want us to respond to your amazing gift of your son and how you want to redeem us through him. I thank you for Jesus. Help us to never, ever look for anything other than him. And Lord, I pray that we just don't bottle this truth up and hold on to it, but we should be overflowing with your love and be genuine and be humble knowing we were dead in our trespasses and sins but because you're merciful and gracious and you loved us and you gave us your son so we could sit with him by the throne at the right hand. We thank you for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.